Hey, it's Chris Jarvis. And Kaylee Metcalf. And thank you for, for listening, listening to It's a Queer Thing. I'm Kalia. And I'm Chris. So, um, so we've been doing this show for almost a year. Um, but more importantly, Jeff Robinson, who used to host this show for about 30 years, passed away um, just over a year ago. Um, we wanted to uh, mention him and say that we enjoy continuing his legacy. Jeff was a huge huge factor in the lgbtq community in fresno he runs ran the pride parade which community link still does um several other events that he did this radio show for 30 years so when he passed there was question about you know is this stuff just going to go away because jeff's not here to run it and a lot of us in the community stepped up to take over uh the projects and i decided to take over this radio show in May of last year, and then I brought Kalia on in June, and she's been with us since then. Indeed, and they are big shoes to fill. Jeff left they some are. really big shoes, and we hope that listening to us for the last year, almost year, uh, has been good for you guys as well as yeah. the community. We, we made the show our own. We made some changes, but I think that the legacy of Jeff is that community is what matters. And I think that the fact that we have two people here talking and that we make a point to have a variety of other voices besides ours come in and talk, I think that we're definitely fulfilling the legacy he left Yeah, us. it was important to Kaylee and I that we have not just uh, uh, on this show a male and a female voice in steady rotation, but that we also have <laughs> Uh, other voices come in and uh, talk about their experiences and so on. So, Hi, this is Dennis up in the control room behind the glass. I just wanted to jump in. This is our longest running program on this station. Wow. Uh, and I wow. want to remind the listeners that your support keeps this station on the air, this program on the air. Chris and Kalia are volunteer programmers. They spend a lot of time at their own expense to come in because they know this station, this venue is the only place this is going to happen. And we are really proud. We are really great. We we love to have them here. So thank you for your donations to keep this show on the air. Chris and Kalia, thank you. Thank you so much for keeping yeah, the show going. Thank you, Dennis, for being in the booth and supporting us every month. It's really important. He's a great producer up there. Indeed. <laughs> um, so who we'd like to talk to first in this show is... Uh, well, real fast, oh, before okay. we even talk to and I know you're excited, but I, I'm so sorry. It is St. Patrick's Day today. Oh, it is St. Patrick's Day today. And guess day. what? I am wearing green, listeners. I, I am wearing green. Ella, my daughter, is here in the studio. She is wearing green. But guess who's not wearing green today? That would be Chris. You know what? I am wearing green. I don't see but any green. it's in my pocket. My first one is Mr. Spock. Oh! From Is There in Truth No Beauty, Season 3, Episode 5, looking into the Medusan Ambassador's mm -hmm. Carrier, and he's bathed in a green glow. Well, and he if, is, but you're not wearing it. You're yeah, carrying I'm wearing, it around. I'm wearing it. And if that's not enough, <laughs> I have Mr. Spock from Patterns of Force, Season 2, Episode 21, where he's been beaten by Nazis, and he has green blood. Okay, hold those things okay, up here. here We're we going to have to, like, get... I knew, I, I knew Kaylee would be questioning me, so uh, yes. I had to contribute to St. Patrick's Day. If these two things fail, I also oh, no. have this. 
which is oh, the best me, green in here, the world, money. That. Okay, you can, you can have the dollar. Right it's just a dollar here. bill, people. I'm not giving her a lot of money. <laughs> well, and if you want to see those beautiful pictures, the Star Trek nerd fun, uh, you should check out our TikTok, check out our Instagram, and we'll have all those links for you at the end of the show. But, okay, enough dilly-dallying. Let's get, see, is Naomi on the line from Raw Fresno? All right, Naomi, are you with us? We are. I am. Yes, All right. Sir. Great. So yes, Naomi ma'am. is with Raw Fresno. Naomi, it's me and Kalia here. Kalia, say hi. Hi. Hi, Kalia. How are you? I'm great, Naomi. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for asking, and thanks for inviting me. So, okay, St. Patrick's Day, green. Green means, you know, uh, being good for the environment, good for our bodies, good for the earth. And you do Raw Fresno, which is all of those things, right? Tell us a little bit about Raw Fresno and what you guys do over there. Absolutely. Today we had Irish stew, believe it or not, and it sold out. It was so excellent. But, yes, we do have organic, locally grown goodness that is all made from plants. And um, our green smoothie is one of our most famous. Everyone loves to come and get a kale, parsley, celery, cucumber, blueberry, and banana smoothie Mm -hmm. from Raw Fresno. Now, how did you do um, Irish stew, Naomi, vegetarian? Um, well, it, we just are very tricky about how we can use <laughs> lovely <laughs> spices. It's really interesting. You know, we make a, a faux chicken noodle soup. Oh. And it tastes just like chicken noodle soup. You want, you will just fall over when you taste it. And it's because of all the regular normal spices that people don't pay attention to. Celery, onion, carrot, all of those three things together and then a few different spices. It's it totally just knocks it out of the park. So let me ask you, do you use alternative things or do you use like actually like like the fake meat stuff? Is your food pretending to be meat or is it very clearly not meat? So don't don't expect it to look like meat. Does, does that make sense as a question? Yeah, no, that's correct. We are whole food plant based. We do not use um fake items we prepare all of our things in-house from scratch out of fruits and vegetables nuts and seeds and so a large portion of our items are raw meaning that they are right out of the garden because it's a vegetable and we might chop it or process it or put it in the food processor or a Vitamix and then maybe turn it into a cracker and put it in a dehydrator and dry it under 115 degrees, and that's considered raw. Huh. The, the deliciousness of the nutrition is not killed by the heat. So that's the whole raw thing. But our food is whole foods, plant-based, and so we do also cook food. And um, so we use a, a large, either Instapot or large, big hot soup pot, and we have different soups every day. So we do do, uh, on Mondays, we'll do like a lentil soup. Tuesdays, we do menudo. Uh, We don't use tripe. I was going to say, how do you get around that? (laughs) Yeah, so we use a certain type of mushroom that I, I, yeah, we just use a certain type of mushroom that looks just like the honeycomb of tripe. Oh, okay. Now, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've heard recently, and I, I, I kind of agree with this, you know, so for so many years now, we have been uh, trying to replicate meat with other things to make it seem like meat. But really, we don't really need to do that. I mean, we need to just have good food that's made of vegetables and natural ingredients instead of always trying. I know mushrooms can be substituted for meat. I've done that myself. But we don't always have to 
try and emulate meat, we can just realize that food can be delicious if it's just natural ingredients. Exactly. I have a question, though, about oh, go ahead. about protein, because I know that that's a big concern of people who don't know about the vegan lifestyle and the vegetarian lifestyle. Where do you get your protein? So can you speak to that? Sure, absolutely. And that's kind of a, no, uh, a, a misnomer, actually, because actually the new protein is fiber. Mm. That's what everyone is missing in their diet. Um, a standard American diet person that would eat just a regular, you know, um, eggs and cheese and meat, they don't have enough fiber in their diet. Um, and they actually have too much protein. Um, and I know a lot of people are saying, what are you talking about? But in the the real food diet is straight from the garden is the kale, the greens, all of these, every vegetable has protein in it. And we don't need um, hormones from chickens and cows to have protein. It's just a, no, a no-brainer. And so um, I remember, because you, ha- you have a food truck, right? You're still going out at the, at the farmer's markets? I do have a food truck, but I do not. We haven't been using it since COVID. We haven't gotten back out there. Oh. It's just, it's like having two restaurants and it's just so difficult to carry, you know, take care of that many um, employees. I'm sure. And a lot of employees don't know how to drive stick shift. Oh, yeah. And that's <laughs> true. So I end up driving the truck all the time, and I don't really want to be out until midnight every night on the weekend. So Yeah. There. I remember the last time I went to your food truck, uh, I think it was at River Park, I had some delicious stuffed mushrooms that I still think about. And uh, didn't you have like, like a cashew cheese or something? What was that? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So we use, we do cashew cheese, sunflower seed cheese, pumpkin seed cheese, um, and then we also make our Caesar salad dressings that are excellent with tahini. We don't use peanuts at, at all. Um, we use tahini in the place of nuts type things. Right. Um, and so it's a seed, so a lot of people aren't re- um, allergic, allergic to yeah. seeds. Um, so the beans and greens is the most popular item and everyone really loves. It's a a hearty Caesar dressing on kale that's massaged. And I have men coming in to our restaurants that normally go to all the meat-eating restaurants in the area, and they've heard about us because they saw us on Dine and Dish on Channel 30 right. recently. And so they, 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 they are... Or they were planning on going to another place, but then they realized, oh, that's that place that I saw on TV. So they come and check it out, and they walk out just blown away yeah. that they feel so full and filled up all day long, and they don't feel like they even have to eat dinner. So that's kind of the, the fun thing about eating whole foods plant-based is you feel so satiated, you feel so full all the time that you actually don't have to eat as much and you lose weight. Right. So that's hey. kind of the happy byproduct of losing weight. That sounds good to me. I yeah. Definitely. On St. Patrick's Day is always the day on my calendar where I go, oh my God, in six weeks I'm going to be wearing short shorts <laughs> <laughs> because it's Fresno and it's going to get hot. Um, so let me ask you, can people order your food off of DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, or do they need to come down to your location? Yes, no, you can order through all of those locations, all those uh, to-go places. We also have a subscription, oh. which um, <clears throat> so people pay for like 
for instance, $140, they can get 14 meals delivered to their house or to their office. And we deliver Monday through Friday, and we have a morning uh, delivery that they'll get it before lunchtime, at lunchtime, and then we have an evening delivery. So, And that is free. We don't charge anybody, but you have to be on the subscription to get that. Wow. Um, That is really cool. Okay, and where is your physical location? It's downtown inside the Galleria. It's uh, right behind the convention center, 2405 Capitol Street. We're just right down there. Uh, Starbucks is kind of kitty corner from the Galleria. Okay, great. And I know that you are pretty active on your Instagram account, right? It's just at Raw Fresno? Yes, absolutely. And, and every day we have a different soup and a different special. We have Taco Tuesday and and Sushi Wednesday. And then we actually even do the Abundaga soup on Fridays. Very cool. So um, uh, give us your phone number, Naomi. Okay, great. Thank you. It's 559-250-5292. You can text your order in, and if you call before 8, you can get in on that subscription before 8 a.m. in the morning. All right, cool. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Naomi. It was great to talk to you. I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. All right, take care. Cheers. That was wonderful. And, you know, it's so nice to have a woman-owned business, especially in this month of International Women's Day. Exactly. Our next segment is actually another amazing woman, Dr. Kat Faubert, who has been here in the studio with us before. And she's going to talk to us in this pre-recorded segment about Transgender Day of Visibility. So hit it, Dennis. So welcome, everybody. Welcome, Dr. Catherine Faubert. We are here to talk about Transgender Day of Visibility. How are you, Kath? I'm doing all right. (laughs) So tell us what this day is about. So Transgender Day of Visibility is a event that is celebrated internationally. It was started a couple of years ago by the trans and gender expansive community to celebrate as well as advocate for the trans community. You know, for Trans Emotion, which is the organization that I'm a part of, we have two big events. One in the fall, which is Transgender Day of Remembrance, which is a way more somber event where we memorialize trans individuals who have been lost by murder and suicide. Again, recognizing the invisibility of that and sort of advocacy around violence and discrimination against trans people. But it's also equally important to celebrate life and to advocate around life and to advocate around the joy as well as the needs for the trans community. So that's where Transgender Day of Visibility started. For trans emotion, you know, for the past, well, for several years, but especially within these past three years, our focus has really been trying to think about what our community here in the Central Valley needs. And one of the biggest ones is around access to health care. So for this Transgender Day of Visibility, we are very much consciously focusing on health care and resources for our community. So the the event this year, can you tell us a little bit more about it, when it is, where it is, and how people can go? Yep. So the theme for Transgender Day of Visibility is Building Communities of Care. It's going to be on April 1st from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Fresno City College in front of as well as within the old administration building. So we have two things happening at that event. We have a resource, foods, and crafts fair that will be going from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. and it'll be in front of the old administration building. We have a lot of really cool vendors as well as organizations. And it's meant to just, again, provide resources for our community as well as fun, get some nice food. There's going to be also artists selling their wares and so forth. So 
in general, come to that. That's also really a great time. But the other thing that we're providing that's going to be within the old administration building in one of the rooms there is a speaker series, all focused on healthcare as well as building and training and providing resources, particularly for those within the trans community, as well as practitioners and counselors who want to support the trans community. So this is where, again, where we really are trying to work on building capacity and better capacity for gender affirming care in Fresno and the Central Valley. So we have a series of three speakers. So at 11 a.m., we have um, one of our board members from Trans Emotion, April Taylor Salary, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's going to be talking about how to provide letters of support. So this is a training, especially for counselors, as well as for the community who might need these letters of support and to understand what they are for. These letters of support are often are a need for those who are going for gender affirming surgery and other sort of needs that their insurance might need to cover. At 12 p.m. noon, we have... Dr. Julie Nicole, who is a very important, wonderful doctor here who provides gender-affirming care. She's going to be talking about HRT and talking about not only best practices and, and needs and so forth, and also any other concerns. Again, it's really meant to both educate as well as inform practitioners as well as community members. And then at 1 p.m. we have a panel discussion about the importance of affirming care. So when we talk about affirming care, what we're talking about is not only providing gender specific affirming care, such as HRT and so forth, but also just creating an environment when you go into a doctor's office or when you go into a counselor that you are being affirmed fully as your authentic self. You're not experiencing further trauma, which unfortunately does happen. So we're trying to very much address that. So we have a panel and that panel is building, but we have community members as well as practitioners talking about, you know, the importance of affirming care and best practices and the needs for that, especially here in the Central Valley. So again, it's going to be happening on April 1st from 11 to 2 at Fresno City College. It's a really great event where there's going to be a lot of resources, both in the resource fair and the food and all of that, but also really informative speakers. So for those of you who are within healthcare professions, within mental health care professions, this is a great opportunity for you to listen to practitioners and to learn. For those of you who are community members or allies who just want to learn, this is also a great opportunity. And for those of you who just want to attend a very affirming, loving event, it's open to everyone in the community as well as allies to come and enjoy and see great resources, learn things, and hopefully in that make some really important connections. It's free to be a vendor. Yeah. And you still have room for vendors. And uh, if you want to sponsor, you can sponsor for as little as $25. Yep. And we'll put a link up to do that. And it's free to attend as well, right? Yes, it's free to attend. And you said there's going to be food and stuff. Yep. Can you tell us about the food trucks? I don't have the specific food trucks, but I know that there will be a vegetarian option. So okay. <laughs> oh, okay. So there is that. But there are going to be food trucks. I think we have right now already 25. I think we even have more vendors or resources. Cool. So it's going to be a really good event full of stuff to come. I highly encourage it. It's very family friendly. So if you want to bring little ones, totally come. So it's really meant to be to try to service everybody, but also to provide some sort of intervention and impact as well as community connection around health care. And so important right now that all across the country, people are 
in introducing bills and legislation that ban gender care and ban gender affirmation and all these things. It's important that we in California, you know, stand behind our principles and continue to support the transgender community. Absolutely. I can consider it better. Thank you. What's the best way for people to get in touch and find out about it? Trans Emotion at Facebook. You can find all the information there about the event. You can also go on our Instagram, which is Trans Emotion. And then if you just want to sort of ask any other follow-up, more specific questions, you can email us at transemotion at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kat. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. All right. So thank you to Kat for that information. Um, We want to mention that we are in the middle of Women's History Month. Women's History Month had its origins as a national celebration in 1981 when Congress authorized and requested the president to proclaim the week beginning March 7, 1982, as Women's History Week. In 1987, after being petitioned by the National Women's History Project, Congress designated the month of March 1987 as Women's History Month. Since 1995, presidents have issued a series of annual proclamations designating the month of March as Women's History Month. These proclamations celebrate the contributions women have made to the United States and recognize the specific achievements women have made over the course of American history in a variety of fields. So you can check out that uh, website is womenshistorymonth.gov. Yay! Yay. But this is when I'm going to be the... Oh, you're never the... I know, but I am. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Yes, yes. And there was women's... uh, International Day of Woman. Awesome. It's great. We have made some really good progress. But I'm here to tell you that only 20 states in our country, that's less than half, um, have gotten rid of the tampon tax. And there is still a thing called the pink tax. And also, women still make less than men. And women are not represented in our government. And the cost of living as a woman is dramatically more expensive than the cost of living as a man. Not just, like, feminine hygiene stuff. That's that's the pink tax. But stuff like socks and shorts and clothing and then household items that are marketed towards women are going to cost more than the stuff that's marketed towards men. I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, it is crazy pants how much it is. And it is it is just, it is frustrating. So Yes, we have made strides. Let's continue to make strides, but the work is not done. There was a great article, and we will link it in our show notes. It's on Marie Claire's website, and it's 36 ways women are still like not equal to men, and it is it is mind blowing. Just like some of the stuff. Well, I don't think I don't think that's being negative at all. I think that's what uh, the women who were highlighted in Women's History Month would agree with that, and would point that out. And they are women who are involved in in this project are working toward uh, fixing those inequities. So yes, let's yep. absolutely point that stuff out. In Just fa- because we have a month celebrating women does not mean women have reached the point of equity. Just like gay people have not reached the For point sure. of equity. And we have our month too. And you can look at the hashtag which is hashtag embrace equity and there's a lot of posts about it and there's a lot of stuff going on with that hashtag. Um, women, uh, International Day of the Woman is a great website as well. So I, I highly suggest you all check that out. Yeah. We'll, we'll link those in the show notes. And I, I encourage everyone out there to constantly do your own research 
experts. So just because you hear something on the news or from a friend or in a social group, you know, it or doesn't on the radio. or on the radio doesn't take very much to get online and do some research and find out what's really going on in the world. Like I didn't know about this when they this until about a year ago that they they have higher prices for tar- for products that are targeted toward women. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Um, and I don't think most people do. Yeah. It's it, and I mean it, it starts so young, you know. When you, when I have a child, diapers are going to be the same cost, right, for the most part. <laughs> and then you get to a certain point, and they don't need diapers; they need undies, right? And they need clothing, so mm-hmm. you can't just like let them loosen a diaper all the time. And baby clothes that are pink cost more than baby clothes that are blue. Right? How freaking dumb I is that? I don't think people know that. And and you know, I take my daughter to Target, and to find her shorts that aren't just up her butt is really difficult. The same, there's more material in the boy shorts than on the girl shorts, <laughs> and they cost less. Yeah. Yeah. What the heck, man? That's not know. cool. And while they're going after drag queens for uh, their performances, oh, yeah. um, you know, they're not pointing out all these inequities in the real world. We're talking about beauty pageants for young young girls oh, right. that are just, I think, uh, terrible yeah, and disgusting. Yeah, I'm sorry, but if you're going to be complaining because drag queens quote-unquote sexualize things, but then you're, not, you're ignoring beauty pageants and the fact that it is almost impossible to buy clothing for children... That is not in some way gendered or hoochie or whatever. I mean, it is just yeah. The way we sexualize young girls in this country and always have yeah. um, uh, And we we teach young girls from the age of birth that you have to wear makeup and dresses and act a certain way, and we teach them to have a very a a huge problem with self-respect. So uh, we need to get out of that. It's going to take a very long time. I'm hopeful. I'm watching my daughter grow up and she and her friends seem a lot more body positivity. They're a lot more comfortable in their own skins. They do not seem to have a lot of the same hangups that women of my generation had from our mothers and stuff in the 80s. The jazzercise craze, etc. Did you just say jazzercise? I did, man. Um, But I I think that I, I am hopeful for the future but I want to make sure that we are all aware that there's still a lot of work to do. There is. So speaking of the the history of women and the history of women's issues here in this country specifically, what a way, great segue. It's, it, Kaylee loves her segues, I love people. Segues. She really does. I need one, a real one. <laughs> okay, anyways. Um, yeah, we got a great... We need a drum. We need a, <laughs> instead of all these buttons, we need a drum roll for something but, um, like that. But I'm yeah. yeah. Um, we were really lucky to talk to Lillian and... Oh my Lillian Faderman. I'm sorry. Yes, I almost said Faubert because I'm looking at my notes. I'm just all <laughs> over the place. Yes. And she wrote a book. She's written several books. But the book that she wrote recently was called Woman, the History of American Idea. We are so excited today to have Lillian Faderman on the line with us. I'm going to give a real quick intro. Here we are. Lillian Faderman is an American historian whose books on lesbian history and LGBT history have earned critical praise and awards. The New York Times named three of her books on its Notable Books of the Year list. In addition, The Guardian has named her book Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers one of the top 10 books of radical history. She was a professor of English at California State University right here in Fresno, which bestowed upon her an emeritus status and a visiting professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. She retired from academia in 2007 and has been referred to as the, quote, mother of lesbian history, unquote, for her groundbreaking research and writings on lesbian culture, literature, and history, which is amazing. So hooray. Hi, Lillian. So nice for you to be here with us today. Hi, Lillian. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. 
So Lillian, the book Woman, which is your latest book, why now? Who is your target audience? Who do you hope reads it? And, and what do you hope they get out of it? Tell us about the book. Well, I, I started writing the book long before Ron DeSantis asked his stupid question about <laughs> what is a woman. But I thought that that not in his mouth, but the question in general was worth exploring. I make a distinction between the idea of female. You know, we, we talk about females in the animal world, all over the animal world, and the idea of woman, which I think is a social construct. I really like Simone de Beauvoir's idea that one is not born, but one becomes a woman. That is, one is taught by society to become whatever woman means. And in this book, I traced where those notions came from all the way back to, on this continent, the Puritans, and how the early Puritans met people who were already living here, Native Americans, who had very different ideas of woman than the Puritans had. And of course, the Puritans were in conflict with those ideas. For instance, I, I tell a story that fascinated me when I discovered it about the Pequot Indians who were at war with some of the settlers, and uh, the settlers were brutal, and the Pequot Indians wanted to sue for peace. And they sent, as they often did, a woman to the settlers to negotiate for peace. And they turned her away. She was a, a woman, after all. What authority could a woman have? And so the Pequot sent another woman to the settlers to negotiate for peace. And they turned her away, too. And finally, they sent five women and an old man. And the settlers were willing to talk to the old man. And my point is that the European settlers, the colonialists, simply could not understand the idea that a woman would have enough power in her community to speak for that community. And so I was intrigued by that kind of conflicting cultural notion about woman. And what I do in the book is I begin with the Puritans and talk about how they defined woman. As one of them wrote, she is subjective to her husband. She's helpful in the propagation of mankind, not even instrumental. She's merely helpful. <laughs> and she um, is not a rambler abroad. She's not supposed to leave her threshold unless, of course, accompanied by her husband. And I'm, I'm interested in the book in, in tracing how those notions about woman just filter down through the centuries, through the ages, and we've had such a hard time escaping them. I think finally, in most communities, we have escaped from those ideas, but that's only relatively recently. And as the Supreme Court decision showed us with the repeal of Roe v. Wade, we can easily go back again. And that's rather frightening, I think. Where do you think the structure for relegating women to number two in society comes from? And why do we cling to that? Why do you think it's still so prevalent? What is it that they think that women don't possess that men do? Well, I, I think the idea comes originally from the fact that obviously women are not as strong as, as men. They, they don't have the kind of physical heft that men have. And in cultures where that made a difference, 
Of course, men took prominence. Of course, women was, as was said, the weaker sex. I think, too, that our inheritance of the the Old Testament and the image of, of Eve as the temptress and the one who permitted the serpent to bring evil into the world, that certainly promulgated the notion of woman in, in earlier cultures. And we've inherited that. It's come down through the centuries. There, there have been periods of time when it seems like in America anyway, or in the United States, society was beginning to understand that those notions had no more relevance. But it seems like almost invariably in the past, there's been a reaction. I think particularly when, when I grew up in, in the 1950s, I never knew that there was actually a period in the late 19th and early 20th century where there was a huge feminist movement where women in, in great numbers were going to college and they were entering the professions because there was so much reaction to that, particularly in the 1950s, although there were earlier reactions as well that when i came on the scene as an adolescent it was it was puritan notions all over again slightly modified of course but only slightly the idea of woman as the weaker vessel the idea of woman as uh, not being as one of the puritans said a rambler abroad she belonged home domesticity is where she should stay she shouldn't cross the threshold of her home and, uh, and that, those were the ideas that I grew up with, or the ideas of the culture, I should say, that I grew up with. Kind of springboard off of that, you've talked about, it almost seems like so there's progress and then there's a reactionary. It's like a pendulum that kind of swings. And I'm wondering, obviously, I think we could all agree that we're swinging a very specific direction now, but does that idea of history that there is a pendulum and there's steps forward and then it swings back because of the reaction and then that there's more movement forward. Does that is that a hopeful idea? Well, I, I think it, it hasn't been a hopeful idea. I'm hopeful now, but you know, I'm thinking, for instance, of World War One, not World War Two. Most people know about Rosie the Riveter, but World War One, in which women really played a much more prominent role than they had before because the men were off fighting and it was necessary to get women working in munitions factories and doing many of the jobs that men did and also keeping the home fires burning for when the men could finally return. It was really their role in World War I that made President Wilson finally decide to tell Congress that it was time to make partners of women not only in suffering, but also in rights and privileges, and women deserved the vote. And it was then that Congress, just a few months later, finally passed the 19th Amendment, and it was ratified by the states. So it really seemed after World War I that women were making a lot of progress and breaking away from simply the notion that woman is, is a, a domestic being. But then, not in the 20s, but the next, and the 20s was a decade of some progress as well. But in the next decade, in the 1930s, the Depression came along. Women had been in larger numbers in the workforce during the 1920s. They were going to colleges in the largest numbers ever. The Depression came along, and there was a real movement to send women back to the home and leave the jobs for men, particularly, quote, married men who have families to support, as though women never had families to support. 
So women returned to the home in the 1930s during the Depression, the early 40s, and then we entered the war in 1941, and women's labor was needed once more. And, and that's where the Rosie the Riveter image came in. Uh, women were encouraged to take over the jobs that men couldn't do. They were encouraged to work for the war effort, to work in factories and, and other places that would help the war effort. The war was over. We all know the story about Rosie the Riveter being sent back home. And and that's where I came along as a, an adolescent in the 1950s. So when I was in junior high school, I remember so well and remember hating it so much. You had to take home economics. You had to take two semesters of home economics if you were a girl. And all the boys got to take shop. Many of us really lusted after the shop courses, but of course, <laughs> weren't open to, to the girls. And it was the era of the, quote, happy housewife, who, as Betty Friedan discovered in her wonderful 1963 book, was not a happy housewife. They <laughs> suffered from, as she wrote, the problem that had no name. And then there was a reaction to that. The pendulum swung again with the birth of the second wave of the women's movement. Uh, and then there was a reaction to that, as I draw in my book. In the 1980s, there was a real effort to send women who had been going to college in unprecedented numbers, who had been entering the workforce in unprecedented numbers, to send them back home again. And then women had to, to work once more because there was a recession and mostly men were affected by the recession. The women's jobs were virtually untouched during the recession. So they were encouraged once more to enter the workforce in larger numbers to help support their families. This happened until about 2000. And once again, there was a reaction with something called the opt-out revolution. Women were told that they really didn't have to work. They, they, uh, they should try to be domestic again. They should remember the joys of womanhood and take care of the home and, and take care of their kids. And some of you might be old enough to remember on a program like 60 Minutes, uh, several women were interviewed who had high-powered jobs and they became part of the opt-out revolution. They gave up a half million dollar a year salary to return home and, and have babies. And then there was a reaction to that with another recession. And uh, once again, women entered the workforce in unprecedented numbers. So will it ever happen again? Will there that be that kind of discouragement of women to challenge the notion of what a woman is that we inherited from the Puritans and to make independent lives for themselves, whether or not they're married, to get an education, to be in the workforce? Will they ever once again be sent home as they were in all of these other times in history? The kind of stuff you're describing seems to be the women on the edge, and they are side effects of the thought process of the rest of society. In other words, not, there's not a lot of intellectual thought going into who women are and what they can contribute and, and how they can be a, a, a part of society just as valuable as men. Instead, it's this underlying idea that men have in general, and again, some women, about who women should be, and that is what decides the course of womanhood. Do you think that we are driven as a society simply by some background noise 
that we share that decides what women should be rather than the intellectual inside of women are this and men are this and we are just as powerful together. And what do you think drives society to do this? I think the default notion that whenever huge social problems arise, like a recession, for instance, or a depression, or the exhaustion of a war as after World War II, it seems that we slip into the default notion of women being who the Puritans said women were. It was certainly true after World War II. It was true in the Depression. And I'm fearful that it could happen again if things get bad enough. It's not a good sign that the Supreme Court blithely overturned Roe v. Wade, because, of course, that's connected to uh, the notion that women need to be, quote, helpful in the propagating of mankind. That is, they, they need to have babies. Although I'm also hopeful that we've come far enough that certainly the pendulum won't swing all the way back. You know, you, you mentioned Genesis and uh, Eve as the, the temptress and whatnot, but I'm remembering that it was more also that Eve was created second. She was an afterthought. And she was created to be Adam's helpmate. And if that's like the very beginning of your sacred text, like literally the first chapter, (laughs) is there any way to come out of that or to change? Or is are we doomed if religion, specifically the Judeo-Christian ideals, stay so prominent in our society? Can we ever escape from that kind of patriarchal BS? You know, how do we deal with that? Well, I think church attendance would indicate that that there is a loosened hold of religion on our culture. It's not that it's disappeared, certainly, but it's not as stringent as it's been in other eras. And I, I think many of us have managed to escape from <laughs> notion of Eve as a helpmate and uh, the one who helped bring evil into the world, as, as the Puritans believed. So yeah, I, uh, I, I don't think that there's still that same kind of, of hold of uh, Old Testament stringencies about the role of, of women. I say that very hopefully. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have an event coming up at Fresno State. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes, I'm going to be doing what the College of Social Science calls its Distinguished Lecture of the Year. I will be talking about um, the history of the struggle for LGBTQ civil rights, uh, and it'll be based on my book, The Gay Revolution. But The Gay Revolution came out in 2015, so of course I will update the struggle for rights for the whole of our community, for the LGBTQ community. And that event is at seven o'clock on the 22nd, and we will put links in the show notes as well as promoting it on our social media. Lillian, do you have social media? Are you on the Twitter or the or the gram, as the kids call it these days? I'm on <laughs> Facebook, and that's about it. <laughs> okay. Atta girl. Atta girl. <laughs> Great. So Lillian, how do you feel about being the mother of lesbian history, which is kind of, we found that online that you have that title. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, I think with, with all my books, I, I've written them because I, I've been passionately 
interested in the subject. I did my work on Surpassing the Love of Men, which came out in 1981 after I published a number of articles on lesbian history in the 1970s. I did that work for very personal reasons. It, it didn't feel like I was certainly not trying to claim a, any kind of place in history, but it, it was a book that I wanted to read as a young person in the 1950s. I would have given anything to read a book like that. And so I, I came out at the age of 16, and I came out into the gay girls bar culture, but I was a, a very literary kid. And I went to the library to see what I could find about women like me in the past. And all I found was uh, stuff by the sexologists like Ricard von Krafft-Ebbing and Havelock Ellis that said that uh, we were pathological, that morbidified us, that thought that we were born with a congenital defect. And I also found another kind of literature a little later, and that was in the drugstores. The drugstores had paperback racks, and I found the pulp novels. And it was incredible how many of those pulp novels were lesbian novels. I don't know who bought yeah. those things. <laughs> I, I suspect uh, voyeurs bought a lot of them, but <laughs> Probably. a lot of people like me who who must have bought those books. The uh, pulp novels cost 25 cents, and it was wonderful to read a novel where women were in love, where women kissed and, and held each other. And you couldn't get uh, too sexual in those pulp novels, but the implication was always there, except that that was kind of traumatizing too. And maybe even as traumatizing as what I read of these sexologists. And the reason that was traumatizing is as tempting as it was to read that stuff, because at least you had literary examples of women in love with other women, all of those books had to have what was called, quote, redeeming social purpose. And what redeeming social purpose meant is that the lesbian character couldn't be victorious in the end. She had to be somehow punished, or she had to convert to heterosexuality. If she didn't convert to heterosexuality, the woman she loved did, and she lost the woman, her woman partner. And of course, she drowned in a well of loneliness to borrow <laughs> a title from Radcliffe Hall's 1928 book, or she committed suicide, or she was killed off. Uh, something terrible had to happen to her, and that was the redeeming social purpose. Which was a common theme in those in the 50s and 60s. I remember, in the, even into the 70s, was it, I, exactly what you said. It was exciting to see. I was more of a cinema person than a book person because there, I couldn't find many books about gay men. But you could see them on the in the cinema, but there was always a sad ending to it. So you were excited because, oh, look, there they are. We are real. But in the end, they were either suicidal or murderers or killed by the police or etc. So yeah, yeah. there was always a sad ending involved in it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking of gay male books as well, such as James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, but that ends very badly, or Gore Vidal's uh, The City and the Pillar, or Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other Rooms. Fascinating to read those books if you were a gay man in the 50s or 60s or 70s, but always sad, always a, a tragic 
denouement. Yeah, absolutely. You've touched on the second wave of feminist and and how feminist movements and stuff have have changed in the pendulum that we've spoken about. How do you think about the feminist movement of today, and how do you think it's being impacted by transgender and gender nonconforming participants? Do you think that the trans community and feminist activists can work hand in hand? Do you see them as having similar goals? Can you speak to that? I think that it's a mistake to talk about the feminist movement. As soon as a feminist, any kind of feminist movement emerges, it becomes very complex and there's more than one feminist movement. I'm thinking, for instance, of of the 1970s, there was radical feminism and there was now style feminism. Now was the National Organization for Women. There was um, a feminism that was very essentialist, that really believed that females were born with certain traits, like they uh, they were more pacifistic than males were, for instance. They, they weren't interested in male competition, for instance. They were better at communal things than men were. Those notions were very essentialist. What, what they said is, you're born female or you're born woman, in effect, and that makes you very different from men. It's not society. You're, you're simply because of, by virtue of the fact that you're a woman, you're different from what males are. And males, of course, are invariably suspect because they're not like you. There was that kind of feminism in the 70s. And there was feminism that said that women deserved equal opportunities. Women deserved equal pay. I think radical feminists were less interested in in being a part of society, less interested in getting a piece of the pie. They thought the whole pie was rotten and they wanted to escape from it and and, uh, have their lunch elsewhere. And so they started uh, women-only communes, for instance. And there, there was real conflict between the two groups, radical feminists and now style feminists who fought for equal rights and who wanted a piece of the pie. I, I think that there's real conflict still, and I think more radical notions uh, are still very essentialist, very suspicious of uh, the trans movement. I think other branches of feminism understand that the trans movement is is interesting in that it says what equality feminists have said, that one is, is not born a woman, that gender is a social construction, and you can understand your gender differently from the way you're born. Uh, if you're assigned female at birth, it doesn't necessarily mean that that you identify as a woman, whatever woman is constructed to be. So I, I think that form of, of feminism is sympathetic to the trans movement, because trans people seem to be saying the same sorts of things. That is that that there's a distinction between what you're assigned at birth and who you want to become. And if the definition of woman for a feminist is that Puritan definition that we've inherited through the centuries, I think feminists reject that definition. Talking about like that evolution of it, I'm sure you're aware of the push in some feminist circles to change the spelling of the word woman into W-O-M-X-N or Y, and there's a whole bunch of different things. Is that on your radar? And what do you think about that? 
It is on my radar, and it's been on my radar since the 1970s during the <laughs> feminist movement. Of radical feminists rejected the word woman, which comes from man, and they had all different spellings for that word. So uh, W-I-M-M-I-N was prevalent, W-O-M-M-I-N was prevalent, W-O-M-B-I-N was prevalent. Oh, I never heard that one. Womb man. Okay. Womb something. Okay. Okay. Wow. So it's it's come up again this time to mean something different, to be more inclusive of trans people and non-binary people as well. But, you know, when when I think of W-O-M-X-N, it reminds me of the uh, present controversy around the word Latinx. Mm, Now, Latinx is is used a lot uh, in academia. It's uh, used a lot among people who are just very aware of the contemporary Latino-Latina movement. But my understanding is that most Latinos and Latinas reject the word Latinx as, as one of them said in a piece I read recently, and I think it was the Washington Post, I don't like a word I can't pronounce. <laughs> right, right. Like, how would you pronounce that? Exactly. We'll, we'll mix in. Yeah. 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 <laughs> sure. Talked about Roe v. Wade. I want, I also want to hear how you feel about that and what the most political, most significant political threat is. But what do you also feel about the fact that 50 years after Roe v. Wade were overturned? Yeah, that that was shocking to, to so many of us, you know, that, that the Supreme Court could do that seemed to be a a terrible warning sign but i i can't be too pessimistic because i think we've we've learned how to organize i'm hopeful that we've gotten far enough that there's no going back totally i i was i recently did a a blog for yale university press in which I, I traced the history of women in politics and uh, how for the longest time, of course, they were given no political voice. Finally, 1920, we get the vote and women didn't know how to use the vote. So something like 36% of them voted in the first election in which they were eligible to vote for president. And in the next election, only 35% of them voted because they simply didn't know how to be political people. And it it took so long before the number of women in Congress were even double digit. And it it, it was it was just at a, a glacial pace. And then finally something happened. I think what happened was the year of the woman in 1992, uh, which was triggered by watching the shabby, disgusting, terrible treatment of Anita Hill in the uh, Judiciary Committee confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas. Just the optics of that, the fact that it was all of these men on the committee, only men grilling Anita Hill, and the realization that that there's really something wrong with women not having a political voice. So more women than ever ran for political office, more women than ever were elected to Congress. And the number has been steadily going up. It's still not high enough, but before Anita Hill, there were like three women in the Senate and just barely double digits in uh, in the House. Now there are 149 women in Congress. So I like to think, and, and so many women governors and women of all races. And you know, I, I really like 
to think that there's no going back, that we found a political voice, that they're not getting rid of us, that that women will never again be seen as as uh, simply a domestic creature who is, quote, only helpful in the propagating of mankind. I'd like to believe that, too. It's in my heart, I'd like to believe that it's very tough the way things are going. I'd like to talk about now about your book, The Gay Revolution, because I think misogyny also plays a lot into the treatment of gay men and the, and the queer community. Why did you write The Gay Revolution? What made you want to explore? all that? You know, I think it's true with, with all my books. I, I choose a topic because I want to know more about it. And with the gay revolution, I, I started writing it about 2012. And we came so far from the years that I came out in the 1950s. And I really wanted to trace that. And of course, I, I was around. So I, you know, I, I knew some of that, but I, I wanted to trace it more carefully. And I wanted to share what I found with readers. How did we get from the time when to all of the churches, no exceptions to all of the churches and all of the synagogues, we were sinners to a time when there were reconciling churches and, and uh, synagogues were open to, to us. How did we get from the time when to the mental health professionals, we were all crazies. We were in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders to the time when nobody believes anymore that we're crazy unless they're crazy, I suppose they might believe. Exactly. <laughs> but we've been taken out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. How did we get there? How did we get from the time when we were witch hunted in the 1950s, not only by the federal government and you know just fired in huge numbers if we had a government job, but it, that idea seeped down into private employers and if you were gay in the 1950s and it was known that you were gay, you were usually fired. You know, at one point, as I discovered, gay people were writing in, in a magazine like One, which was an early homophile magazine, as they called it. Um, so many gay people were unemployed because it was discovered that they were gay. You couldn't keep a job in the 1950s. How did we get from the time when we were all in every single state, we were virtual criminals? And the reason we were because it was because in the 1950s, every single state of the United States had sodomy laws on the books. And sodomy laws most often in many states applied not only to men, not only to gay men, but to lesbians as well. Because sodomy meant not only um, anal sex, but any kind of, quote, unnatural sex. And so we were presumptive criminals everywhere. How did we get from there to now when we have the Respect for Marriage Act and you can be openly gay and serve in the military. Just these huge changes. And what I wanted to do in the gay revolution is trace how those changes came about. And what I discovered, I think, was very exciting that, that they came about because we learned how to organize all political affiliations of us learned how to organize. Radical, I'm going to use gay as an umbrella term because that was the term that was in use uh, most of the time. Radical gay people learned how to organize. 
um, triggered by Stonewall, and then groups like the Gay Liberation Front. More moderate gay people learned how to organize through groups like the Gay Activist Alliance, and coming out of that, what came to be called the National Gay Task Force now has a, a much longer name, of course, or what was finally the Human Rights Campaign that started as a gay lobbying organization, or uh, the Lambda Legal Defense Fund. Um, we learned to organize, it, the slang used to be uh, both the streets, the suits and the streets, meaning <laughs> more moderate gay people and radical gay people. More moderate, obviously, the suits and the radical. This was a long time ago when people still wore suits. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> About the 70s and the 80s. <laughs> and the more uh, radical gay people, the streets. Um, so we, we learned how to organize. We learned how to fight on all levels. And we learned something that perhaps even more important, we learned to come out and how important it was to come out. Because before we came out in great numbers, I think straight people had the luxury of thinking that gay people were those guys and women too, who dwelt in twilight and jumped out at 14-year-olds, were pedophiles and were only interested in seducing youth. Now that we've come out in such great numbers, people know that we're your brothers and sisters and we're your neighbors and we're your employers or employees and we're people that that you like and people that you love. And, and I think that's been really crucial that we now have so many straight allies who are in many cases as passionate about our rights, as passionate about our being equal as we are ourselves. And I, I think that those two things have been so important in, in this struggle to make us what I would call first-class American citizens. Right, right. We're not quite there. And, and of course, there have been terrible reactions, as we see with, I think there are now something like 750, since last year, 750 bills presented to legislative bodies to take away our rights. Yeah. And, and specifically in the trans community and against the drag queens and all of that kind of stuff, is it just the natural backlash to progress and then backlash from progress and backlash? Or is this current crop of anti-trans legislation, et cetera, is it part of a different pattern or something bigger? What do you think? You know, I, I think it's action and reaction, action and reaction. And I think the the reaction comes from the side that thinks we've gone too far, but they've always thought we've gone too far. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, of course, Florida is a very interesting example with Ron DeSantis and what he's done with his don't say gay bills. But um, I'm thinking of, of the uh, 1970s and Anita Bryant. Most of your listeners are probably too young to remember Anita Bryant. But what happened in the 1970s is something like 40 cities by uh, 1976, 40 cities and counties around the country had passed uh, legislation protecting the rights of, I'm going to use the word gay people again, because that was the umbrella term in the uh, 1970s, 
But what was meant by that term was LGBTQ and all of uh, those words. Right, exactly. Um, So about 40 cities and counties had passed that legislation protecting our rights. And in Miami-Dade County, a group of activists got the board of Miami-Dade County to ask or to add actually just a few words to existing non-discrimination legislation. And the few words were sexual and affectional preference. And so you couldn't discriminate in jobs and housing and public accommodations against people on account of race or religion or national origin or sexual and affectional preference. And that caused a huge backlash in 1977 and 78, led by Anita Bryant, the right wing in Florida, and it spread all over the country. And it, it, it was so tame in relation to the progress that we have made. Just don't discriminate us against us in housing and public accommodations and employment. And it caused that backlash. And and finally, we we fought that and we won. And in uh, most cities and counties, uh, we have, if not that specific kind of legislation, uh, legislation that does protect the rights of uh, gay people or LGBT people. And now there's a reaction to that because we came as far as we came. So, you know, I think it's it's always been we take a few steps forward and there's a reaction that pushes us a few steps back. I shouldn't say always, but certainly since the the gay movement got steam in the 1970s, we take a few more steps forward and we're pushed a few more steps back. But we know how to fight and we have allies. And that's the important point. I don't think I'd thought of it that way, Lillian, even though it makes perfect sense, because when I grew up in the 70s and I remember Anita Bryan and all of that, you're right. It was a much more tame dialogue. It was about give us housing, give us some equal employment, give us just basic human rights. And now what's going on with DeSantis and and now spreading across the country, as you said, is much more radical. It's they don't want us even mentioned in schoolrooms. They don't want us taught in education. They don't want us performing in certain stages of dress in front of people where a child who, of course, cannot walk up on their own, but maybe in the vicinity of a drag show, it, it it's becoming now much more like it was in the 50s. It's gone past, before the 70s and two, two decades back to the 50s to take us back. And I think that's scary to a lot of us. Um, I don't think a lot of younger people understand it because they didn't live in that era. But for people like you and I that were that lived in that generation, it's terrifying to think that we're not just going to go back to when we were asking for housing rights. We're going to go back to a time when we were arrested for being gay, that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's it's very scary. But I, I want to, again, inject a hopeful note. In the 50s, most of us weren't out. We, we didn't dare to be out And so we had no allies because straight people didn't know that we were their brothers and sisters and and beloved friends. We we were hidden from everyone but the gay world, and we didn't know how to fight. There was a homophile movement, but it was so 
tiny and they knew so little about how to demand rights that it was really pretty ineffectual. There was just the beginning of homophile publications. We didn't know how to speak to one another across the city or across the states. And there, there was so little organization. And I'm hopeful now because we we have a long history of knowing how to fight back, of knowing how to organize. Well, when you talk about fighting back, let me ask you this question, because I get this all the time, because Kaylee will tell you I'm a loudmouth. I, I, I will go out and we had a recent event uh, where the Proud Boys were demonstrating against a drag event at a local church. And I went out with my husband and we went there because Kaylee and I have this podcast, this radio show, and I wanted to talk. To, to one of the Proud Boys just dispassionately in, in a separate area and just talk about why they felt. And of course, it didn't work that way because they were screaming and yelling. And I was told by some people at that event, don't engage these people. It only encourages them. It only makes their argument better. I kind of stand on the other side where I can't see them being the only ones screaming these things that they scream at our community and not screaming back a little. You know, like in the in the AIDS movement, there was ACT UP and they, they said the same thing about ACT UP. They said, don't get out there and do these things. And because ACT UP got out there and demonstrated and turned cars over and set fires, we got AIDS medication. So what do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I think that if things get bad, we have to make ourselves felt. We have to make our voices felt. But in the AIDS movement and and before that, in, in the incipient homophile movement, we had so few allies. I think that we have support in so many places now. Even the president of the United States really supported the Respect for Marriage Act. That would have been inconceivable in the 1970s. And if someone had said that in the 1950s, we would have thought they were smoking too much <laughs> That, that exactly. would have been insane in the 1950s. So we have allies and we have the experience of many decades of organizing. And I don't think we're going to take this lying down. We we know how to fight and we will fight. Wow, you've made me feel hopeful, Lillian, which is not an easy thing for me. For That's true. Yeah. I, I'm the optimist. He's the pessimist. So yeah, I'm glad, yeah. glad it's coming through here. Well, what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court, Lillian? What do you think? We have a obviously a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And when they first got on the, the conservative justices first got on the court, it actually didn't look too bad. They weren't siding with conservatives and Republicans right away. But now it kind of seems like they're going the other way. And I don't know how we combat that because it's such a long term position. The conservative majority on the Supreme Court seems, for the most part, quite scary. And of course, the repeal of Roe v. Wade is very frightening. But whenever I get scared, I keep remembering what happened in 2020 with Neil Gorsuch and Bostock v. Clayton County, which was a very interesting case that actually combined three cases. There were uh, two gay men who were suing because of employment discrimination and one trans woman who was suing because of employment discrimination. And incredibly, Neil Gorsuch, who, of course, is part of the conservative majority, wrote the opinion in Bostock v. Clayton County saying that um, discrimination against gay people and transgender people was in violation of Title VII 
of the Civil Rights Act because it was discrimination on the basis of sex. Incredible. Now, he wrote that opinion because he's a textualist and he he read Title VII uh, for its text, read it literally. But that was that was so surprising to me and to many other people who were following that Supreme Court decision. So although I'm very upset about Roe v. Wade, I'm really hopeful that there is a possibility that if if even the conservative justices like Neil Gorsuch look closely at the text like Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, they won't let their usual homophobic prejudices kick in. I like the, I like the hopeful part of you, Lily, and I really <laughs> appreciate that because like Kaylee will tell you. My I don't better know. days, I'm hopeful. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. I appreciate I'm glad that. we caught you on a good day. Thanks. So you've written so many books and on a wealth of topics. What's next? Are you going to write another book? What's it going to be about next? Do you have any ideas? I'm, um, I'm actually working with a high school teacher on turning my last book, Woman, the American History of an Idea, into a young adult book. Oh, cool. That's awesome. You'll be the next book to be banned in schools, right, Lily? <laughs> but only in some schools. Only in some schools, and right. not in California, we can be sure of that. Yeah, true, true. That's amazing. I love that idea so much. I have a daughter and I she would be scared to read this book. It's it's intimidating, but if it was uh it was a little bit more approachable. I think it's a 250 page book for young adults. <laughs> yeah. Kaylee is a great reader. I'm not a great reader. And when I get a book, I always look at the page count and I got your books this week and I'm like, oh my gosh, look at the page count here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I write huge books. It's true. <laughs> the last one isn't as long as the gay revolution though. The gay revolution was a manuscript of a thousand pages. Wow. The last one was about 800 pages. Yeah, it was it. I'm a fast reader and I read for my other jobs. And so I can usually be like, oh, a book, I'll knock it out in you know a few days. It's not a problem. I got this book in the mail on, on, <laughs> and on Monday and I was like, nope, <laughs> I have two other 500 page books to read this week. I can't add a third one to my list, but I am looking forward to reading it next week. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> Well, Lillian, I, I can't tell you what a pleasure this has been. It's been an honor for us to speak to you. I completely respect you. And the fact that you gave me hopefulness is is a huge plus. Most people don't give that to me. And I hope we give that to our audience as well. Um, we totally appreciate you being here. Thank yes. you. Great to for both of you. And hopefully I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. That was Lillian Faderman. Uh, that was a great interview. Yeah. So thank you so much again to Lillian for that wonderful, wonderful interview. So we want to move on to our next segment. And now I am looking at my notes because Chris <laughs> reminded me that we print out notes for a reason. And our next segment is our You Rock and You Suck. And Chris. So I'm going to start with my You Suck. Of and course. Um, of course I am. Uh, you Suck. Yeah, that one. Um, so this is about Tennessee Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally. Now, I know some of you have seen this because Saturday Night Live spoofed it on their show on Saturday. This is, if you, first of all, go and watch the initial interview he did when he was found out. What he was found out doing was liking and commenting on uh, a young guy who is sometimes clad, sometimes partially clad on uh, Instagram. 
um, and this is a 20-year-old guy. And the, inter- the interview was just fascinating. It's the strangest political interview I've ever seen. And I actually felt sorry for this guy. And I, I hate that I felt sorry for him. But he was sweating and he was having trouble coming up with answers. He um, announced Monday that he is pausing all social media activity after the revelations that he repeatedly commented on posts. I, I think it's important here to note why this matters. This is not just a person who li- who's liking pictures. No, 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 no. Because we're not kink shaming or... But tell us why it matters that this particular man is up... It was found. Because he is behind and supportive of a lot of anti-LGBTQ legislation. Exactly. Um, And and he's... (laughs) So part of his reasoning for doing this was he's supporting his constituents. He's... I like to encourage people and support my constituents. Now, some of the emojis he posted on this kid's... And I say kid, he's 20. On this kid's... uh, photos were, you know, flames and hearts and said that this kid brings rainbows into his everyday life. I mean, it's clear that this guy is gay, um, at least bisexual. Um, And he has a wife and family and he's not a young chick by any stretch of the imagination. I think he's in his 70s. He's 79, actually. I just saw it here. Um, And uh, the tennis, I just found out today that the Tennessee House has, the Tennessee Congress, Tennessee House has issued a statement that they want him to step down because his initial response to, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to step down? Was, I'm not stepping down unless the people want me to step down. Well, now the GOP in Tennessee is hoping that he steps down. Um, so uh, I think it's important because, like I said, it was it's sad, both sad and disturbing because he pa- this, we have so many politicians who pass anti-LGBTQ legislation and privately support, support, and that's in big quotes there, or go after or are gay um, in, in their private lives. Mm-hmm. So it's completely deceptive what they're doing, and they're getting a lot of people in their ball, in their in their uh, audience uh, supporting them because they're going after us when in fact they're for us. Right. It's 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 the blatant hypocrisy and also the very blatant. This is the new wedge issue. So abortion was the wedge issue. It's what gets your base motivated to come out. Now it's the fear of trans people. That's right. the big wedge issue. That's what's going to get people out to the polls. And so people who want power. They don't care how they get it, and if it's they easy don't. to go after the trans community or the LGBT community because they know they that they know that that makes some people real mad, and they'll show up and do stuff, whether or not they personally believe or not, it, it doesn't matter. It's just a power thing for them, which is really, really. And this guy was commenting as LT governor. I mean, he wasn't <laughs> even trying to hide how he who he was when he was commenting. That's how secure they are in that they're they're. Um, constituents are going to support them even if they're out there you know commenting salaciously on a 20 year old he not that 79 is ancient but it is getting up there to not have the wherewithal to switch into a different instagram account well that's kind of why it was so sad when i was watching him i'm like this guy's probably gay and and of course has been his whole life he's got a wife and kids and is a conservative and he was reaching out online to find some kind of outlet and he wasn't smart enough to to know that in this day and age you're going to get caught yeah 
That's so. There's yeah. no excuse, but I felt sa- I felt sorry for him. Well, just to kind of piggyback on that, a bunch of my you suck things uh, are about you know Kentucky lawmakers who have passed a ban on youth gender affirming care, and Florida becomes the eighth state to restrict transgender care for minors, and Mississippi governor has signed a bill blocking treatment for transgender minors, and then also just to go off of your Tennessee, um, in Tennessee, Governor Bill Lee rejected over eight million dollars in federal funding for HIV prevention. So this is not an isolated incident. People say, oh, don't be chicken little. The sky is falling. No, no, people. This is this is calculated and, and intentional. And it's affecting our lives. Yes. In a very meaningful way. There's another guy in Tennessee, state rep Paul Shirell, who is now apologizing after comments he made Tuesday suggesting the Tennessee's death row inmates be executed by, quote, hanging by a tree. Oh, my God. I know. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just unbelievable what they're saying. Wow, I didn't see that, and I'm really kind of glad. Okay, I do have some good news. Would you like to hear my You Rock? Oh, let's hear You Rock. My You Rock is Senator Michaela, and I really hope I'm saying her name right, Kavanaugh from Nebraska. She promised three weeks ago to filibuster every bill that comes before the legislative this year, uh, even the ones she supports. Why would she do that? Well, in her own words, quote, if this legislator collectively decides that legislating hate against children is our priority, then I am going to make it painful for everyone. I will burn the session to the ground over (laughs) this bill. So in an example, a routine liquor taxation bill came up. She held it up for three days. Okay, first she supported the bill, and then she spent the next three days discussing everything but the bill, including her favorite Girl Scout cookies, Oma's Pa's best donut shop, the oh, plot for the this. animated movie this, Madagascar, yeah. and she has slowed the business of passing laws to a crawl by introducing amendment after amendment to every bill that makes it to the state Senate. So basically, okay, this year's 90-day session is, is half over, and not one single bill has been passed because of her. That's great. I love it. I yeah. love it. Burn it down the way we can. Fight with the what we have. You have to fight with the tools you have, and, yep. and you have to fight fire with fire. Um, my You Rock is a young girl, 15-year-old student, Marissa Barnwell, who in South Carolina, and uh, she was uh, walking through the school hall one day while the Pledge of Allegiance was happening, and she didn't immediately pull over and, and put her hand on her heart and do the Pledge of Allegiance, and a teacher grabbed her and threw her up against the <gasps> wall. Oh, my God. And chided her for that. They said they have video that there were other kids walking through the halls as well that were not accosted, and they were, of course, what do you think, white. This girl oh. is black. The parents of this South Carolina ninth grader said in a federal lawsuit that the teacher pushed their daughter into a wall when she ignored to demands to acknowledge the Pledge of Allegiance. This is personal to me because when I was in third grade, I stopped saying the Pledge of Allegiance when I was in class because I didn't like the under God part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a lot of crap for that um if you if you're a patriot in this country it means you can you 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 choose or you choose not to say the pledge of allegiance just like football players choose to kneel it's because they're making a statement Mm -hmm. that is patriotic and i'm sick and tired of people saying if you don't follow these rules you're not patriotic because i love my country but i i would refuse to say the pledge of allegiance under certain circumstances as well yeah and i always drop the under god part as well absolutely absolutely okay are we ready for quotes and such we're ready we are Okay, I have, uh, I have my first quote is, you may have to fight a battle more than once to win it, which is a great quote 
unfortunately, it's by Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> so my second quote is by a little bit of a, of a more heroic person. My second quote is a Nelson Mandela quote. Do not judge me by my success. Judge me by how many times I fell down and then got back up again. I think that's important Absolutely. to remember as we fight these trans bans. And my quote is, justice is about making sure that being polite is not the same thing as being quiet. In fact, oftentimes the most righteous thing you can do is to shake the table. That's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Woo, an amazing woman. So remember, we post this show as a podcast tomorrow. So we hope to see you guys next month.